Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Wondering what Netflix would think of our streaming habits. It's episode 193 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. A lot of things were creeping up on, as a matter of fact. Creeping up on 200 episodes. Really, really excited about that. Creeping up on 2018. And Christmas is, what, like a little over a week away. So, so happy that you decided to spend part of your holiday with me. As a matter of fact, going to have a friend of ours back on the show. That's right, Zach Kaplan, who's the writer you know of Eclipse and now Port of Earth, which is his new book that's out. Going to have to ask him about that. Going to ask a bunch of other stuff too. I will preface this. We'll ask him about Star Wars, of course. But I will say that the review that we're going to have of Star Wars The Last Jedi, because I want it to be a spoiler-filled review, not going to happen this week. Probably going to be next week or the week after that. I will keep you posted. Make sure you're following us on social media, facebook.com slash down and nerdy and at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter. I'll try and post an update of which show our review, or should I say my review of Star Wars The Last Jedi will be. I will let you know about that. Plenty to come on this week's show, including more comics. That's right. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Blair Redford from The Gifted, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pull out that long box, fire up the laptop or the tablet, whatever you're reading on this week, it's time for what we're reading once again, and once again, diving into the pages this week of The Flash, number 36, from DC Comics with the great Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter on the art, Hi-Fi doing the color Steve Wands on the letters, and Barry Kitson with an amazing cover, and you see right on right there on the cover, no spoiler here, that one of the rogues has died. Now, I say that because if you know the Flash history at all, could be anybody, right? So, And you know the rogues are in Iron Heights, too. So this does take place in Iron Heights. And Barry's kind of been reassigned there. If you haven't been reading the Flash, he's kind of been reassigned there. And he's almost like a crime scene organizer, if you will. You know, make sure everything's kosher for when the police get there sort of thing. So, I mean, it's a different role for him. But we very much get back to the CSI Barry, the scientist Barry, in this issue. And I think that that's really, really cool. Now, I will say that when you do find out which one of the rogues is dead, they do explain it a little bit. You don't necessarily know all the circumstances, but you'll know who it is. They'll give you the information on that. Even the relationship with the Flash, too, actually, they will give you that. So... You, you do get a little bit, but you don't get everything in this first issue, but you get enough to certainly want to keep reading and be interested. I'm just going to get this out of the way now. The art by Howard Porter throughout is amazing. And as a matter of fact, one of the best parts about it, I thought, was there is a part of this book where Barry is talking to one of the prisoners that is very much a part of the early Flash arc and rebirth. That is all I will tell you. That could be anybody, right? So that's not a spoiler either. This is a character that it's not an easy conversation to have. And maybe you can read into that whatever you will. But the interaction there in the art by Howard Porter, I think, really sells what Joshua Williamson is writing there. It's, it was such an important part of not just that book, but of this complete arc from issue one all the way up here to 36 entirely. This was a huge moment. 
in this book, I thought, and, and maybe this is something that we'll get to explore more going forward, but I mean, I thought that that was a really cool part of the book. But also, the interaction with Warden Wolf and Iron Heights, and you kind of get a sense that not all is right at Iron Heights, and maybe Barry's there for a reason, and maybe Singh knows that. I mean, there's a whole lot going on other than the fact that one of the rogues is dead in this issue. And we also get to see Barry, again, really struggling with his own personal demons here. I mean, that's kind of been a theme of this book. And one of my favorite themes of the Flash book is that this is a flawed Barry, and this is a Barry that's very much dealing with like I said, with his own demons. So I'm glad that they're just sticking with that theme. And I will say this. You kind of get that internal monologue by Barry, and he's kind of narrating it for you. And you know that something's coming, right? You just know. And, and they even hint to that in the, in the narration that something is coming. When you see what it is, you're just going to be like, oh, really? But in a good way. And, and that's exactly how I reacted. And then... Once you see that, and I'm really trying to be spoiler-free here, so bear with me. You take that a step further, and you see the last couple of pages of this book, and it it was one of those moments where, wow, if this happens, that's going to be incredible, and I can't wait to see Barry's reaction to this. It's just one of those moments that I keep having when I'm reading The Flash. It's been one of my favorite books in Rebirth from the beginning, and it continues to be because it has these wow moments that are, I mean, we're on issue 36 now, and I'm getting this wow moment. And it's capitalizing on its past issues, which any good arc should do up to a point. I mean, you always want to be able to have new readers jump in, but all good arcs should always capitalize on where they've already been. And this very much does that. But at the same time, I feel like as a new reader, you might be able to jump in here. You will definitely be a little lost, okay? I'm not going to lie to you. You'd be a little lost here, but it actually tells you in the book which issues to go back and read if you're lost. So great job by the editing team there of DC Comics. This is a poll for me. It will continue to be a poll for me. I love what Joshua Williamson's doing. I love the art by Howard Porter. The Flash just keeps being consistent, and that's one of the things that I love so much about it. Let's head to Aftershock Comics. I haven't done an Aftershock book on the show in a while. So how about Monstro Mechanica, number one, written by and co-created by Paul Aller, Chris Evenhus does the art, also a co-creator there as well. Sorry, Chris, if I butchered your name. Jan Wagers does the colors. And Paul Aller also doing the letters as he does from time to time. This is a book that's kind of following Leonardo da Vinci, the early years of Leonardo da Vinci, I should say. And he has a present apprentice named Isabel. And one of the main themes about this book actually is the politics of the Catholic Church in the 15th century. I mean, you're talking about the Papal States, Medici, Pope Sixtus IV, all of that stuff. So, But there is one thing that kind of stands out, and you see this in the cover, so again, not a spoiler. We have this, for lack of a better term, I guess, robot that has been built by da Vinci that is kind of part of his, you know, support. It's supposed to be protection or muscle, if you were. And, and, it's, and it's an invention. And we've seen Aftershock do this before, kind of take historical figures and take a different angle with their story and actually have them do something a little bit different. And they're doing that here with Leonardo da Vinci. It's almost like Leonardo the Badass kind of thing. But there's something not quite right in da Vinci's world. And he knows that he's kind of a wanted man, and he's kind of going about his business. And I would say a very reckless manner. And it's very interesting, the relationship between he and his apprentice, Isabel, because Isabel is very much a woman outside of her time, and I will leave it at that, Um, and you can find out what's going on with her 
once you read the issue. It's not eye-popping necessarily, but if you understand the time that they're living in, it would certainly have been a big deal then, I guess is the best way that I could put it. And her relationship with this mechanical object, I guess you could say, and how her and Da Vinci view it differently is also an interesting theme of this book. And it's one that I'm glad that they're exploring, and hopefully that is the theme going forward. But we find out something that Isabel is doing with the Monstro Mechanic, I guess is the best way you could call it, take the title right there, that is maybe a little bit dangerous. So maybe she's, you know, you could make an argument that she's the reckless one, but then you see why she's doing it, and you go, oh, well, you know, maybe that's a good idea after all, which is kind of the thought that I was left with. I will say this, though. As I'm reading this book, and it starts off with a bang, by the way, a lot of good action and a lot of great art in this book as well. So we have two good books this week as far as art's concerned. I will say, though, that the way that you jump into this book, I almost feel like I did miss an issue. I feel like this book could have been better served with some sort of a setup issue for issue number one, or maybe even have a zero issue that sets the stage a little bit, because there were points where I felt like maybe I was a little lost in this book, and maybe that's my problem. Maybe you won't feel that way when you read the book. And it, well, it's not necessarily a huge criticism, because it certainly was a good read, but at the same time, there were, there were moments where I definitely felt lost, where I was like, well, you know, my focus was here, now you're pulling me here, now you're pulling me here. It wasn't jerky, necessarily, but I wish the flow was just a tad bit better. I do love the way that Paul Aller writes the Da Vinci character and taking him out of context like that. I really do like that. And I do like how the tension of the era is presented as well. But at the same time, I would have liked to seen a little bit more setup and a little bit more of a direction of, okay, this is where we're going for sure. And I guess you kind of get that. A little bit. I just wish it was a little bit clearer. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, so I will give this book right now a pickup. I was kind of going back and forth on this. I'm certainly interested in the direction that it's going, especially with. I'm actually more interested in what's going to be happening with Isabel than Da Vinci, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing because she was a character that I kind of gravitated to the most. I found the most interest in her, and maybe it was because you know Da Vinci was so out of context, and this is early Da Vinci. So maybe it was that, but every time she was on the page, I was paying very, very close attention and to what she was doing. So I have a feeling that she's going to be a very interesting part of where the story is going, and she might end up actually being the lead of this story at some point. That's just a guess on my part, so we'll see where it goes. This is a pickup for me. Let me know what you think of Monster Mechanica. Tweet at DanNerdy757, either of the books this week, and let me know what you think. It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, we'll dive into a couple of fall finales. It's This Week in Geektainment on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is B.D. Wong from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's Christmas time, but it's also fall finale time for a lot of your favorite shows and my favorite shows as well. So I thought This Week in Geektainment, I'm going to do probably one of the best nights in television, two fall finales that happened on the same same night. We're talking about Lucifer and The Gifted, which happened on Fox on Monday, two of the most consistently good shows on TV right now, and maybe the strongest night of nerd TV that we actually have. So both going to be spoiler-filled from here on out, and we'll go in order, go ahead and talk about Lucifer. And one thing I will say about Lucifer is that the show has been good even without consistently focusing on the Sinner Man arc that they've had. I mean, I know they did the last couple of weeks, but it seemed like they'd kind of gotten away from it as a whole, really, 
in the last several episodes before the last before these last two and it's not that I didn't notice I did, but it didn't bother me because there was so much other good content that was going on and the relationship between, you know, Chloe and Lucifer still how that's going and everything that was going on with Charlotte. It was almost like, well, you know, it's it's okay that we're not focusing completely on the Sinner Man. And then we find out who found out who the Sinner Man was. But, you know, there was always something about Tom Welling's character, even from the beginning that I was like, you know what? something's not right here. Something doesn't quite add up. And I actually have the same thing with The Gifted coming up when I, when I talk about that here in a minute. But something was just like, ah, there's more to him than just being the lieutenant here. And and then you've got, of course, everything that's going on, or not going on, I should say, with him and Chloe. But then we're starting to see flashes there of maybe she's interested. Well, clearly she's interested from a certain standpoint anyway. And, and, and is that going to materialize? Because he doesn't seem that interested. That's the funny thing is that he really just doesn't seem interested in her at all. And then speaking of interested, how about this whole Dr. Linda Amenadiel thing? I got to say that my wife was going to be my wife was saying, are they going to hook up? Are they going to hook up? They need to hook up. And when she kisses him, it's like, okay, Wow, well, maybe this is actually happening. And then Maze isn't exactly comfortable with it. Maze comes back. She's not happy with Lucifer either because, you know, and then that's been a contentious relationship lately too. And Lucifer's so wrapped up in his own thing that Maze is upset and for a good reason. But then Maze always comes through for Lucifer in the end, doesn't she? Let's talk about the meat of this episode. When they decide to sneak the Sinner Man out to try and save this woman's life and find out exactly what's going on, and then we find out that, you know, and they know that he has some sort of an accomplice at this point, right, because he couldn't have kidnapped this woman and left her there at the same time. So when that all goes down, and then the Sinner Man is missing, and Lucifer's missing, I knew instantly what was going on. I knew that Lucifer had taken the Sinner Man somewhere to try and get the information he needed out of him. What I didn't know was, was that there's going to be Maze stepping up, being there for Lucifer like she always is, there's no matter what that relationship is like, she was always there for Lucifer and continues to be. So she does her thing, the torture thing. They still don't, still don't get anything out of them. But that whole interaction between the Sinner Man and Lucifer, it wasn't as tense as I expected, but it was still great. It had more emotion, I think, than tension, especially because, you know, you care so much about Lucifer's character and Tom Ellis doing a fantastic job as always that it was more emotional to me than tense. But then when he starts talking about, you have to be the one that kills me. It has to be you. That's when my radar went up and I was like, why? This is really, really interesting. And is this part of the plan that he has? And and how much of a part of it was he at all? And then, of course, you see the lieutenant come in and take the sinner man down. And there was just something always so flat about the lieutenant, right? Not a whole lot of emotion there or anything like that. It was just very, very even keel, and this continued to be, except for when Ella tries to be all excited when he gets back and he yells at her, and you could see Ella's heart breaking in that moment too, right? Like like a hero was shot down. You know, like they say, never meet your heroes, and she was just shattered in that moment because she's sung his praises this entire time, and he just kind of snaps at her. And then we find out. Let's just get right to it. We find out that Tom Welling is actually Kane, and my jaw dropped to the floor. I knew that 
I, I, I actually thought maybe he's going to end up being Gabriel, right? I mean, if you're familiar with Lucifer Comics. And I still think that Gabriel should be brought in at some point. But when he said Kane, I'm thinking, ah, oh, Joe Henderson, Ildi, you are some beautiful, beautiful people. The Lucifer Writers Room, bravo, because what a great choice and what a compelling second half of the season this is going to be. When you've got Kane and Lucifer, but again, he's very much a, Tom Welling is very much the, it's, it's baseline right now, isn't it? You're, you're, I'm waiting for the one extreme or the other. Now that we know that this is Kane, and now that we know what we're dealing with here on the show, I'm waiting for that extreme one way or the other to see which way it goes. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen in the second half of the season for Lucifer. Before I move on to the gift that I also want to talk about, one of my other favorite stories right now is Charlotte Richards and what they're doing with her. And especially when she had to watch Trixie in this past episode, I thought that was fantastic. And it was actually Trixie that's trying to get her dad, Detective Douche. I cannot not call him Detective Douche, by the way. I am sorry, Kevin. I know that you're not that guy, but that still makes me laugh, so I can't not call Dan that. So Detective Douche and Charlotte, Trixie trying to bring them together which I think was great. And she actually bonds with Trixie. And Trixie kind of gets Charlotte to want to talk to her kids. And Charlotte's the DA now. She's really trying to turn over a new leaf. It's just interesting for me. And I know that she's not mom anymore. I know it's a completely different character, like Trisha told me at uh, San Diego Comic-Con this past year. But you can't help but see there's still some transition there. And she still has to atone for everything that mom did. When she was kind of when she was Charlotte, even though that wasn't really her that was doing it, so it, it's just very compelling what the, what they have going on with her. And Lucifer continues to be one of the best written and consistent shows on television. Then you go to the next hour after that, and you're talking about The Gifted, which has also been such a stellar, consistent show for Fox. And it's funny because you have a DC property, albeit Vertigo, and a Marvel par- property right next to each other. And they work so, so well. And you're looking at everything that's going on with Trask and everybody being kidnapped. Again, spoiler filled from here on out. And everybody that was kidnapped and is at Trask and everybody's being experimented on. But then, of course, you know, it's going to be Andy and Lauren. They want to experiment on the Strucker kids. And it gets really, really tense. Nice wink and a nod to Wolverine, too, with the adamantium and another Easter egg that was in there. Bravo. I like that by the writers. Very subtle, but very, very appropriate. So they want them to use their power, demonstrate it so they can measure it in some way. And then we find out that they're doing that because they're trying to put an end to the, quote, mutant problem once and for all. And they think that they can harness this power to do that. Now, what really bummed me out in this was that you kind of felt like a death was coming, but you didn't know who it was going to be. And then it ends up being Dreamer who gets shot by the doctor. And, well, it's funny because I asked Blair Redford about the love triangle, and there goes that, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's clearly not an issue anymore. There's no more triangle because it's kind of turned into, what, more of like a flat line now or a greater than or less than symbol because you've got one line that's completely out of the triangle. Too soon? I, I don't know. But, I mean, I'm going to miss Streamer because I loved her as a character. I thought that she was great. And, I mean, talk about a team, a very important team member to lose, too, for the Mutant Underground. So that was a really tense scene. And Lauren taking the death very, very hard, basically saying, you know, that she died for nothing. And it's funny because Andy has become 
more of the level-headed one. He kept them from leveling that building before they got captured, and now he's trying to comfort his sister, and it seems like the sister is the one that's falling apart. It's interesting how now, in a time of crisis, that relationship has kind of shifted a little bit. So I think that, I think that that's very cool, and I'm interested to see, as the second half of the season goes on, if that trend continues or if we see that kind of level off a little bit more. The other thing that I absolutely loved was when the Strucker parents went to confront Jace Turner at his home with his wife. And that, see, to me, that was a tense scene. Because, and you, and you understand both sides of the argument, I guess you could kind of say, you could kind of, you know, who comes in with a gun to somebody else's home. But I loved when Mrs. Strucker said, look, you came to my house with a gun, and I was terrified when you came into my house looking for my kids. And you could see Jace Turner's wife, her expression change. And I think it was really in that moment where everything changed and everybody's fighting for their kids in a different way. That's what I love. And and the different perspectives that come in. And that's the one one other thing that the gifted makes you do. It makes you debate either internally to yourself or externally to your to other people you know that watch the show and your nerd friends of the different kind of perspectives and the different sides in this. You know, which side are you on? But without being political too. And that's the thing that I love about the show is that it's not overly political, and that's easily a mistake that the writers could make is to do that with the show, but it's not. It's very subtle, and it, it strikes more debate within the show than anything else because you could see, just like Reed Strucker said, he's like, I can see in your eyes, Agent Turner, that you're a decent man, and you could tell that he is because then what does he do? He goes to Sentinel Services, and he says, I want all these prisoners now. What you're doing is not right. So, you know, he is a good man. He is convinced. And we had when we had Kobe Bell on the show, he kind of hinted to that. He's saying, look, he's a good man, but he has to do some bad things sometimes. And we'll see that conflict come in. So I love that we finally got to see that come to fruition. We'd seen kind of we you've seen in facial expressions him agonize over certain things, but it was never one of those things where he took action and it finally did. But then almost like the justification for everything, right? And Esme, from the beginning, even before she started pulling her little games, I looked at her character and I thought, okay, something here about her isn't right. And at first, I thought she was going to be one of the moles that was put in there from that project through Trask for Sentinel Services. I thought she was a mole. Turns out, not so much. She has two other twin sister mutants that were captured. She actually did have family in there, and her powers as a telepath got cranked up to 11 because she started this ultimate massacre. And if you saw the show, you saw it. I mean, I, I can't. I mean, it was uncomfortable to watch at times. Just watching her just get into everybody's minds and either gun down the agents with another agent or have the agents gun themselves down and blowing, getting people to blow themselves up. It was so intense, in, in, even on the side of good. I mean, if you want to call it that, again, depending on which side of this that you're on, on the side of good to see this massacre. And you see Marcos running back there. He's like, they're killing everyone. They're killing everyone. And it's like, this isn't right. So now you have the Mutant Underground, which is the quote-unquote good guys. And they see something horrific. And they run back and say, this, and it's almost like a, this isn't how we wanted it to go down. The result you get is correct, but this isn't how you wanted it to go down. So it's almost like the, the tables have turned a little bit here. And how do you think that, that, that that's going to work out, right? Now I'm wondering, everything Esme did, maybe she goes back to the Mutant Underground and says, Hey, I, I gave you results. Here's our people. They're back. 
maybe now we're going to get a power struggle between Esme and Thunderbird. That is very, very possible that John Proudstar, Blair Redford, who we just had on the show, is going to be in a power struggle with Esme now. Because you have that, I mean, that was the argument, right, before they even went to try and save anybody between the Strucker family and Polaris and all the and, and Eclipse and all these other mutants was that, hey, look, you know, at what point do we show strength here? At one point, at what point do we have to be a little bit more aggressive? And then Esme takes that to another level of aggression and does this, and clearly, I would say, crosses a line, right? So maybe... There are others in the mutant underground that feel the same way and are going to see these results, and we could see a power struggle. And we we also heard a couple times there are no enemies in this room talking about the mutant underground. Well, the infighting might start now, after this, and I'll be very curious to see who takes whose side here. And now that most of Sentinel Services has been gunned down, where do they go from here? And where's Agent Turner's head right now after seeing his friends get gunned down? after being confronted in his home, after he himself taking damage as well. Where's his head going to be at? Is he going to be gung-ho against going after the mutants again? Or is he going to see another side to this? So his reaction to this is also just as important, I think, as anything else going forward. And bravo to the gifted, and, and the writer's room especially, for just doing such a fantastic job throughout this first half of the season with with creating this debate and creating a very good, compelling story and giving every character that we see on a regular basis their due, giving them their spot, giving them their spotlight, giving them a storyline to focus on, but being able to meld it back together so, so seamlessly because that could easily, it could easily be choppy, right? Easily be choppy to put all this stuff together, but they've done it and kudos to them. And when this show comes back, I that's going to be one of the first shows that I watch when it comes back, because I want to see what happens in the fallout from the massacre at Trask. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tamment and Fox's Monday lineup with Lucifer and the Gifted. Up next, some nerd news to get to before the holidays on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer and co-creator of Deadpool, Fabian Niciesa, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Diving into the business world and talking about one of the biggest acquisitions ever because it's time for nerd news. And maybe the biggest news we've had all year, and that is it's a done deal. Disney purchases 21st Century and 20th Century Fox for just about $52 billion, just a hair over that. Now, I'm not going to go into all the huge detail of this. And I'm not going to rehash a whole lot of the stuff that I've already talked about on this topic when it was a rumored deal, but this looks to deal with... The movie rights, of course, mainly dealing with the Marvel properties such as X-Men, Deadpool, Fantastic Four. Those were specifically mentioned. Looks like FX will be a part of this deal. Looks like Nat Geo will be a part of this deal. But one of the biggest surprises for me was it looks like Fox will be retaining their broadcast television network. So that's not going away. That's one of the things I think was interesting in this deal. Because that was the whole, okay, what's going to happen with Gotham and with Lucifer and all these other things? Are, are those going to be going away or are they going to be staying on Fox? And now we know that it looks like Fox is going to be retaining their, their broadcast TV network. Maybe that maybe we find out that's not the case as of I'm recording this. Maybe we find out different details. But for now, it looks like the Fox broadcast network will stay the way it is. But then you look at FX and you look at National Geographic Channel, which you might not think is a big deal, and I guess it's not, but I mean, you're talking about 
a, a lot of may, possibly shows on there, a future for that network as well. So they were just kind of starting to get going, doing some shows. So we'll see exactly what Disney decides to do with that. But you have to think about television distribution rights because this did involve the sale of some TV stations. And remember, like Modern Family, for example, was distributed by Fox. So Disney will get that back owning ABC. Now they'll own the first run rights and the distribution rights. And that goes to syndication and things like that. So, But let's get to nerd stuff now. I know this is a bad deal. Okay, I'm not a fan of it. This is it cries monopoly to me. I don't like it. I don't like the hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that are going to lose their jobs. I think that's what gets lost for some people in all of the excitement. It's like, ooh, we can get Avengers versus X-Men, Secret Wars, and Wolverine can fight the Hulk. But what we don't realize is all these employees for Fox that will probably lose their job. Or even employees that are already at Marvel Studios. They might lose their job because somebody thinks that their Fox counterpart is just better at what they do. Don't think that that can't happen either. So, unfortunately, when it comes to things like this, you're going to see a lot of people lose their job in a tough job market already. But I'm not going to get into the political aspects of things. Let's talk about the brass tacks here. Remember in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when Judge Doom was buying up all this property and he's like, I bought the red car so I could dismantle it. I kind of feel like that might be what's going on here. I'm worried that that's what's going to be going on here. Because I feel like Marvel doesn't really care about the Fantastic Four. They just want a Doctor Doom. Remember when that rumor started? And they said, oh, we really want to have Doctor Doom for an Avengers movie. Guess what? Now you've got a future Avengers villain. When you didn't know where they were going to go after Thanos, now you know. This is where they can go. You can go Doctor Doom. Now, a lot of Spider-Man stuff makes sense, too, because if you kind of sweeten that deal, you could do Spider-Man and his amazing friends, Spider-Man and Deadpool, and all that stuff. But combining those two in this in the MCU going to be tricky, because one of the things that Bob Iger said in one of his many, many interviews on this topic was, Deadpool will likely remain rated R. Hold on a second. You just said likely, and that makes me nervous. You know what I mean? Anytime you say probably or likely, you're leaving the door open. And I know that that's a business tactic. I totally understand that. But for anyone who is completely confident that they're going to leave Deadpool along and leave Deadpool the way they, that he is, instead of trying to soften him up and sell a bunch of toys and t-shirts, don't get too comfortable, is all I'm saying. Now, I know kids are buying the Deadpool figures, wearing the Deadpool shirts anyway. I'm not going to get into why or how that is. Hey, I don't think it's something that I, I need to explain or look into. All I'm saying is, is that don't be surprised if Disney sees the dollar signs involved in a character like Deadpool and decides to make him more friendly, especially when teaming him up with Spider-Man. Could you imagine the Merc with the Mouth and Tom Holland's Spider-Man doing a movie together? How well would that work out? Because you really think Disney for two seconds is going to do a Spider-Man movie the kids can't go see? Yeah, think again. That's never going to happen. So I don't know if we'll ever see that, but there's certainly a bunch of things that we can see. Now, as I talk about how bad this deal is and how I'm not sure this is really, you know, it's one of those be careful what you wish for kind of things. Let me play devil's advocate for just a second. All the while knowing that I still think that this is a bad deal. What if Disney's acquisition of Fox is their way to try to give themselves a little bit of edge? Think about this for a second. 
you've got the mouse, you know that they're always trying to be family friendly. Well, maybe they look at the stuff that they were doing with Netflix and now they're pulling that off. They're going to be starting their own streaming channel and now they've got a lot more content for that. So once you look at what they're doing, what they did with Netflix and they let that have edge and it was a little bit more adult, right? Maybe their acquisition of Fox is their way of saying, hey, we might have our family friendly Mickey Mouse stuff over here, but now we have Fox. We're going to let Fox be Fox. We're going to let this be the, the network with Edge. We're going to let this be our, our kind of the arm of our company that has the edge to it. This is going to be the thing that if, you know, it's for adults only kind of deal. Because Fox has kind of built that reputation, right? They have that edge to them. They've always been that network that always like to push the envelope a little bit more. So maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they just decide that they need a little bit of edge, stuff like American Horror Story and such. And that's and this is how they're going to do it. So you'll have your Avatar movies that you acquired. You'll still do your X-Men movies the way that, you know, they'll, they'll still be family friendly so everybody can come watch those. But then you've got stuff like Deadpool and Cable and X-Force and stuff like that. And maybe a few other properties down the line where you go, okay, this can be rated R. This can be okay. I know we're Disney, but this is Fox. It's not actually Disney. So it's almost a way of disguising what you really want to do. But this just, I don't know. I'm just so, so nervous. I hope they don't try to bring back Hugh Jackman because I know he's been a great Wolverine. I think it spits in the face of the legacy that was a great movie like Logan. I know it was set in the future. I get it. But that was a great send-off for Hugh Jackman. For that matter, a great send-off for Patrick Stewart as well. You can't bring those characters back. You just can't. You have to recast them now. And maybe you go the James McAvoy route. Maybe you don't even worry about it for as far as Professor X is concerned. So maybe for him, you don't care. But again, this all depends on timelines and all of these other things. And think about this too. This acquisition maybe pushes characters to the side that you wanted to see in other instances. You know, maybe somebody like a Moon Knight or something. I'm not saying him specifically, but a character that you're wondering might get their own show or own movie. Good luck with that now because you've got all this X-Men stuff that we're going to be playing with. The Fantastic Four, eventually they'll do something with the Fantastic Four, even if it's just like a Human Torch type deal. You know, you take the Human Torch out and put him in an Avengers-style movie or something like that. Maybe you do something along those lines. But that pushes other characters to the side at the same time. And I know the world opens up with this Disney streaming channel. But again, you're adding more content with the acquisition of these Fox properties and FX and things like that. So it might not be the golden gem that nerds think it is. And I think you need to take off the glasses a little bit there. I know that that's a stereotype. I get it. It's a, it's just a play on words. You got to take them off and see this for what it really is. And it's, it's, it's corporate greed. Basically, let's just, let's just call it what it is. This is a monopoly type situation. And this is not the golden jewel that you really, really want it to be. We might see some cool stuff, but at what cost? That's the thing that that's the thing that bugs me the most. You're going to see some cool things, but at what cost? And now Disney owning a piece of Hulu, and they're basically hell bent on bringing down Netflix. That's basically what it is now. Is it out of spite because Netflix wouldn't sell to Disney? I don't know what the deal is, but keep in mind things that are already done by Disney behind the scenes that you might not know about. And I know that a lot of companies do that as well. But again, careful what you wish for because this might not be 
the great thing that you think it is. And this goes way beyond Marvel properties. Think about all of the other movies that are a part of this deal that might not get made now or might get pushed to the side and may never see the light of day because of this. So rejoice in all things X-Men and all things Marvel that might come from this and the fact that Disney now has Avatar. But think about it four or five years down the road when you're not seeing certain things that you might have seen if Fox had never sold to Disney. Moving right along, because there's other news to talk about this week and a couple things that caught my eye. How about the fact that She-Ra is going to be coming to Netflix according to Deadline in a series, and guess who's going to be doing it? Noelle Stevenson of Lumberjanes fame is actually going to be at the helm. And it's going to, this is a quote directly from the Deadline story. It says it's going to celebrate female friendship and empowerment with a warrior princess tailor-made for today. That could mean anything. And it was the, the only part that scares me is tailor-made for today because I don't necessarily want this to be a modern thing. I hope that they keep Shira exactly in, in the setting that it not necessarily like dead on to the animated series from the 80s or anything like that. Not what I'm saying. I just hope this isn't one of those things where it tries to be grounded and modern and they do a complete 180 and try and do something really screwy and different. I want a legit Shira series. That's exactly what I want. As far as who could play Shira, I mean, I know that there's a laundry list. Nothing that comes to me off the top of my head. If you've got casting ideas, tweet me at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter. Tweet tweet the show. Let me know who who you would pick to play Shira. I mean, I think that there's a ton of great actresses that could certainly fill the role. But I mean, to find out, you know, who's who's got the schedule that could actually work for this? It's going to be coming out in 2018. Have no idea how they're going to end up being able to do that. So quickly, clearly they've already thought about this and have things planned. But usually in shows like this, and when Netflix does this, they'll cast somebody and you'll go, huh, didn't think about that person, or I didn't know who that person was. It's going to be one of those things, I think. I think this is this is going to be an almost unknown that gets cast in the role of She-Ra. And I'm wondering exactly how CG-heavy this show is going to be, or what direction they're going to take. With this show, is it going to be a lot more practical effects? I think that would be cool. I mean, if you want to put it more grounded and do it that way, do it in the way of practical effects. I would have no problem with that. And maybe it'll look a little bit different. I'm okay with that. I know Netflix is not afraid to spend money. I mean, look at Altered Carbon. Clearly, they're going to be spending a lot of money on that. So I'm just hoping that we get a true adaptation here, and this isn't one of those things where Netflix tries to be super, super creative and do something totally different like a modern world setting. I doubt that that's what it's going to be, but it was that last line in that quote that really scared me. So we'll just have to see what happens. Something that's also going to be coming from Netflix is going to be The Witcher, of course. This is according to Variety. You know they acquired the rights back in May. Lauren Schmidt-Hisrich is going to be the showrunner of the series, of course, worked on Daredevil and The Defenders, so that's a legit pedigree right there. This is going to pertain more to the novels than it will be to the game, apparently. But, of course, there's going to be some overlap. The novel's been around since the 90s, if you're not familiar with that. So it's not like there is a lack of content there to focus on. One thing that we don't know as of right now is which Witcher they're going, or Witchers they're going to focus on. I know that Geralt seems to be the default that everyone would want to see because of the video games and everything like that. 
but not really known. So it's hard to talk about casting here to know where you would go with casting because you're not even sure who they're focusing on right now. So maybe that's something that we'll revisit in a future show. But I mean, you're talking about enhanced monster hunters here. I mean, these these witchers are, are a big deal. For, if you're not familiar with the video game series or the novel, novels, this is a perfect kind of fantasy world for Netflix to adapt. And I think this is the kind of thing that Netflix has wanted to do a little bit more. So I love the fact that The Witcher is going to be coming to Netflix. And I think that, again... They're not afraid to spend money, so I know visually this is going to be very, very striking. I can't wait to see what Netflix is going to be doing with The Witcher. And now, there was no specific date set for this, but if Sheer is coming out in 2018, I'm guessing The Witcher would probably be coming out, be coming out in 2018 as well. We're also assuming, though, that these are also going to be live action, because that wasn't specified either, in either case. Maybe that's been updated since, again, but... This has not necessarily been set in stone that these are live-action adaptations. It could be an anime-type thing, like Castlevania was. Maybe it is live-action. Maybe they'll do an animated version that's not like an anime style. Who knows? I mean, no matter what they do, I'm down for this. I think that both are are a great idea and something that I think is, is very timely and something I'd really like to see. If you've listened to this show at all, if you follow the show on social media or follow me on social media, you know that I've said, hey... Where's Dick Tracy? Where's my Dick Tracy? Now, more I've been talking more about TV, but at this point, I would have taken anything Dick Tracy that I can get. And then Archie Comics comes to the rescue. That's right. Archie is going to be rebooting Dick Tracy. Reboot is their word, not mine. Okay? So, The Hollywood Reporter says they're going to be rebooting Dick Tracy. It's going to be co-written by Alex Segura and Michael Morrissey. So, big guns being brought out by Archie for this Dick Tracy reboot, so that tells me they're taking it seriously. And Thomas Patilli is going to be doing the art for this. Of course, you if you follow Archie Comics, he's done a lot of Riverdale covers and such. Now, the teaser art that they showed for this, it was Dick Tracy, Flat Top, and Tess that were in the teaser, and this book's going to be coming out on April the 11th. So everybody looks a little bit younger. That's one thing I will say. So this is kind of the trend that Archie does with certain licensed characters, is that they'll give us a younger approach to it. I don't hate that idea. I don't hate having a younger Dick Tracy series, maybe the beginnings of Dick Tracy, maybe not the very, very beginning, but at least almost like still a somewhat green Dick Tracy who's still figuring out who his foes are and still finding his way around around the city and kind of getting his feet wet and stuff like that. Maybe that would be a cool thing to do. But if they dive right in with an experienced Dick Tracy, don't care about that either. What I would like to see is more of a deep dive into some of these villains. You know, with like Big Boy and Flat Top and Mumbles and stuff like that. And there's a ton of other villains that you could do here. If you remember the comic strip that's been around forever, since the 30s. So it's not like there's a lack of stories to be told here. And, I mean, if you're doing this in comics, and, and of course, it's probably going to be a monthly, I mean, you could go forever on this. I think Dick Tracy is one of those detective series that could really, really work and be a great seller in the comics world. And I think that Archie Comics obviously feels the same way, and that's why they've decided to bring it back. I'm just very interested to see what kind of an age range we're talking about for Dick Tracy here. Your creative teams seem to be really, really excited to do this and have been big fans for a while. So that's why I want somebody that's been a fan of Dick Tracy's to be on these books. And it looks like that's exactly 
what I'm getting. So having Dick Tracy back in any form of media, I'll take it. And maybe if this comic series is successful, maybe a reboot movie or TV series will actually happen. I would scream like a little girl if that happened. I'm not even going to lie to you guys right now. It's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, going to chat with our buddy Zach Kaplan about his book, Port of Earth. Heck of a lot more, too. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Matt Hawkins. I'm a uh, writer primarily, but also the president of Top Cow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is definitely a familiar name if you're a fan of this show. We're so excited that not only did he, does he have Eclipse going, but he has a brand new comic that Issue 2 just came out this past week called Port of Earth. It's our buddy writer Zach Kaplan. Zach, what's up, man? Hey, man. How you doing? Pretty good. I mean, you started out so strong with Eclipse, which is great, and now you're doing something that I feel is very different from that in Port of Earth. So kind of compare the two series a little bit and tonally, what do you feel is the biggest difference between the two? Uh, yeah, they are different. Uh, I mean, they're both sci-fi. They both have, you asked me to compare them and now I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, here's what they have in common. <laughs> here's what to like about sci-fi. them. Uh, they're both, uh, sci-fi and they both, uh, kind of trade on big ideas, but, um, yeah, they're very different. Eclipse is a, is a very, uh, I always use the word pulpy because it's very like, uh, well, it's film noir, but then it's just got a lot of like twists and turns and it's kind of fast paced and, um, and, um, Port of Earth is a little different. Port of Earth is a little headier and a little, uh, slower burn and, um, I don't know. I, I it's um, and I think actually Eclipse starts off dark and then gets a little. Mm-hmm. It, there's a, a hopeful message, whereas Port of Earth starts off hopeful, and then you kind of realize that um, it's uh, it's not the um, most idealistic story in the world. So um, yeah, they're they're different, but um, I don't know. I think some people will read it and still see see my influences and, and me in there. So um, they're definitely both dear to my heart. Oh, I definitely see you in there. There's no question about that. As a matter of fact, when we first talked about Port of Earth, when it was announced at San Diego Comic-Con, you and I were kind of chatting off the air and you compared it to like a colonization of the Americas with pilgrims and Indians and how that was kind of like the biggest business deal at the time. So how did you want to bring that to more of a modern and unique setting like the alien consortium and people of Earth? Yeah, I was definitely inspired by the history of kind of civilizations uh, meeting. And uh, we've seen so many movie and TV and stories in pop culture that looks at, um, uh, you know, aggressive, violent clashes of, of military might and armies going at it or invasions of our planet. And, and this is a definitely um, a different take of what if aliens came to in, in business and kind of trade. And um, it, it kind of explores, uh, to me, a kind of more modern um, point of view because you, you hear about this deal and it seems like it's a win-win and then you realize maybe it's a lose-lose. And then I, I kind of kept trying to go back and forth in the story. So by the end of it, it, it you don't know what to think. And I'm, I'm hoping that people would read like you know the first trade or the first eight issues and kind of go – feel really inspired to talk about it because um, how do you reconcile the pros and cons of any business deal? And it seems like for every 
pro, there's a con, and these things are just complex. And so the aliens give us technology, they end our energy crisis, we uh, have first contact, and we don't get our planet taken over, but in turn, uh, some of the aliens that are visiting our planet, uh, we don't know who they are, and they're coming, uh, um, and they sneak uh, out of the port, um, they're not supposed to, and they come and cause trouble in in, um, urban centers and and kill people, and um, we're tasked with the responsibility of protecting not just our own population, but um, protecting them as well. So it's complex. So um, I don't know. That was all very interesting to me to kind of take a very complex look at at this business deal and all sides of it. That's one of the cool things about this book, actually. I love the interview segments that are kind of put throughout the first couple of issues and the kind of constant focus on who got that better better deal. And we talked about this being a slow burn. That's exactly how I feel. And, and, and with the slow reveal of how any deal like this has way more moving parts than the general public might actually think. So will we see that onion kind of continue to be peeled throughout the first eight issues? And out and from an outside perspective, who would you say so far has gotten the better deal? I Yeah, it continues. That structure, the interview is, is present through the first eight issues. And uh, each, each uh, segment reveals a whole other layer to uh, the deal, to the... So if people enjoy pick up issue two and they enjoy that that interview takes us deeper into the deal and the world, they're going to be thrilled to keep reading because the, the the interview continues to explore that and and also in a very dramatic way because the interview is a very contentious interview between this journalist and and um, the head of the Earth Security Agency. Mm-hmm. In terms of the and who got the better deal, I purposely wrote it. Um, to make it so that I couldn't answer that question because it's like, I really genuinely see both sides of the argument and, uh, you can't write, uh, like the journalist will attack, um, the head of the ESA and say like, how do you explain this? This is completely, Mm -hmm. you know, terrible for us. And he can't explain that. But then in turn, he's got an argument that he makes. This is, well, what about this? And you can't deny that either. You're like, that makes complete sense too. And it's just real. And so, um, I don't think I could have written it well if I kind of went into it saying, ultimately we got the better deal. Or ultimately they got the better deal. Cause that would have come out. So I think it, I think actually going into it and writing it from a very, um, non-committed unbiased standpoint allows me to capture both sides of it. And, and, um, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not commenting on, I kind of, I don't know. I, you know, this is a very uh, existential question, James, and we could, you and I could probably geek out all, all day oh, about totally. it. Totally, yeah. Is it stronger for uh, a comic book creator to lay down a very concrete one-sided argument and someone reads that and they go, I totally agree, that's right, that's what's wrong with the world. Or, you know, to raise a question where someone goes, man, I, I now I'm thinking about this and I don't have the answers and it makes me want to explore mm-hmm. and makes me want to activate and talk. And, and so I don't know. I, I both have merits, um, but this is definitely the, the latter where I went into it just trying to make people think about deals and uh, and our relationship with uh, potential aliens if they come or, or, you know, just civilizations colliding and, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. 
Let's take that a step further, though, because there are two characters we get to see a lot in the first couple of issues, actually more so in the second issue, and that's uh, Rice and Mac, who are the ESA agents. Now, it feels like these two characters are kind of representing, both representing one side of the argument when it yeah. comes to the deal and the port. So would you agree with that? And are they kind of saying what you hope the readers are thinking and discussing after reading these books? So this has been a really interesting one because I get to, you know, as a creator um, and a new creator especially, um, I'm online watching what people say and watching reviews and all this kind of stuff. And um, But I'm already, you know, writing issue six right now. And so uh, I know where it all goes. And, and so I think they, they come across presented very by the book in the beginning as just two guys and one guy feels one way and one guy feels another way. And you kind of go, okay, so th this is about the two different sides of the fence. And they do represent that. You know, uh, Rice is a very by-the-book protocol kind of guy. And, um, you know, his point of view is we, we enforce the deal. We keep the peace. We protect aliens and humans alike. And the other guy is saying if an alien breaks the rules and comes here and they are are give me um any reason to think they're a threat i'm going to put them down mm -hmm. and um that's that's kind of the two lines but um that story takes a turn and it's a slow burn again so something major happens at the end of the first arc in issue 4 and then the second arc kind of takes this these two characters and really flips it on its head and creates a whole nother conversation about um how we feel about this situation. And so, um, yeah, I, I think um, right now these two characters are meant to be uh, just a setup of who they are and kind of just very much the status quo of these agents and the kind of dilemmas that they face and what they deal with and, and, and very classic points of view. But um, it's not meant to be this, the, the, the kind of argument that's going to go forever because it... Um, Obviously, it's a comic book, and something dramatic has to happen. So, uh, so yeah, um, I, I think it's. I think right now, readers, if you if you picked up the first two issues, you're just meant to be thinking about um, the different points of view, but but uh, and and getting to know those characters, you know, very slowly. So, talking to writer Zach Kaplan of Port of Earth, and of course, Eclipse. If you've been reading that as well, issues one and two of Port of Earth are out right now. Zach, one of the things that I love that you did in these first couple of issues are the back pages, actually. Where you actually gave info on all the different kind of alien beings in, in the first issue, and then in this latest issue, the ESA agents and who's running that themselves. So what made you want to turn what a lot of other books consider throwaway pages into something meaningful for the reader? Well, I don't know. I just know that I appreciate uh, back matter. And uh, when I pick up an issue and then I read it and then I get to the back and there's more to it. And if, if I've enjoyed the comic, I, I just enjoy that. And so it's just something I like as a fan and some are, you know, um, so it's just when I get the chance to do it, um, I like to do it and I like to just try to go a little bit deeper and just share a little bit more, um, about the world. And so one, one thing we did with the back matter in the first two issues is we kind of shared a, um, the, the, the Earth Security Agency's database. And you kind of get a little more information about, um, about their, the aliens and about the, um, about the ESA and the, the way they operate. And uh, it's not meant to be anything super revealing. It's not like, um, it's not like there's a secret Easter egg in there that's going to like 
um, blow the lid off the whole series, but it's just there to kind of um, give people a little more um, depth and, and world. So it's just something I like to do. I like reading that stuff. So I did too. I, I actually thought it was really good insight into the series and it made me kind of get into it even more, honestly. Great. Well, that's what it's meant there for. <laughs> Your job has been done. Well done, Zach. Awesome. <laughs> now, speaking of which, man, you've been very lucky with artists on your first two books. So kind of talk about what Andrew Muti brings to the table, especially in this issue with that alien reveal and all the action sequences we see. Yeah. I mean, the first issue is really set up, but this is, uh, and um, I don't think there's any action in issue one, but Andreas, um, he's done a lot of action, everything from rebels to star Wars to aliens i mean he's been um doing comics for 20 plus years and so he does action really well it, he he um it's dynamic it's fast-paced um I, I i think the people will pick up issue two and here's what people's experience will be for issue two you'll you'll open and find that interview and you'll be really excited by the the depth of the politics and then you get to the last uh the the, the story pages and it's a breeze because uh, Andrea really knows how to 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 draw suspense and then to draw action. And so, um, yeah, he he it, it's great. And I mean, one of the reasons I chose him is that he he knows sci-fi. He captures like a very fluid, textured kind of feel to it. Um, and yeah, it's just a really cool style. Um, it's a very um, it's got a lot of his style's got a lot of emotion to it. I find so. Um, yeah, I've been spoiled rotten with artists, and um, and for new projects, I definitely have. <laughs> I definitely am. Uh, uh, it's yeah, it's like going out with the r really uh, uh, attractive girls uh, for your first couple dates or something. I don't know what the, but uh, yeah. Yeah, you've uh, had you've had tens in your first two books, Zach. That doesn't yeah, happen to every first time writer, you know. Dude, you don't always get tens, and I'm like, but I got tens before. It's uh, yeah, I I got spoiled rotten. Um, well, now your hand is stamped, right? So every book from here on out, I mean, you should be able to pretty much call your shot two tens I on hope your resume. So. I, would be, I would be nice, uh, but you know, it's like, um, Giovanni, both of these guys. I mean, uh, Andreas has has a following because he's been doing it for so long. He's done so many books. Um, but also, I don't think Andrea is um, a mega uh, name in terms of art. You know, he's done, I think, DC and Marvel, but mm. um, he's just been kicking around. But he kills it. He's just a great – he is a great artist. And, and, and Gio is a, a different kind of story because Gio had been doing Dynamite stuff and never done Creator Own. Right. So they kind of had different backgrounds. Um, you know, Giovanni came into Eclipse and poured his heart and soul into that because that was his first Creator Own book. And uh, Andrea is just a, a pro who's been doing it a long time and, and, and always does a great job. But, um, yeah, I, I uh, definitely uh, will have my work cut out for me picking artists in the future. Now, you've actually done a really good job in, in Eclipse and here in Port of Earth so far in world building. And a, part of, a big part of that in creating any new series is creating new characters. But to me, in a way, the port itself really feels yeah. like the most important character yeah. In this book. So as a writer, how different is it working with a focal location and not necessarily a focal character? It's hard. You know, here, I'll tell you, uh, to get nitty gritty, uh, to get down and nerdy, uh, yeah. you talk a lot about um, the covers. And 
so common to put characters on the covers, right? I mean, that's who you identify with. That's who you form an emotional connection with. And I just had this idea. I don't know if it was just the fact that I was comparing it to so many cinematic touchstones like Arrival or District 9 where the characters aren't on the cover. And, uh, you know, Arrival is the spaceship. Uh, they had a, a series of posters where it's just the spaceship or District 9. It's the spaceship hanging over um, the uh, the ghettos. And, uh, you know, I just was drawn to, to this idea of, well, this is, this is about the port. And you put two agents on the cover with guns and it just feels familiar to me. And um, as much as we, we emotionally connect with them, it, it didn't have the same, it didn't convey the same thing as putting the port on the cover. Mm. And so, yeah, the port became the character. And how we looked at it from the beginning was always very removed. We wanted to create a sense of mystery. So you're always seeing it in the distance. We have a lot of... um wide vista shots throughout the series where you, you see the port in the background or in the very beginning we see the port but from above we're never inside the port in the beginning and and we're hoping to create this um for people who get on board and really are into it that this sense of like longing to see what's inside mm -hmm. so that we can uh, finally um wow them when we do get that chance um so we will see what's inside the port, but we're hoping in the beginning to set it up as mysterious because the reality is if this happened, uh, we um, most people would never see the inside of the port. I mean, it's like the space station or something, right? Like, right. Uh, or um, I don't know if Tesla builds something crazy or, you know, like we're never going to see the, you and I are never going to see the inside of that right. thing. So uh, we're only going to get to see it on news channels and and from afar in the distance and so we wanted to kind of recreate that kind of uh relationship but yeah with the covers it was um it we had a uh, a lot of discussion about it um because you know it, it, but it's the it's the it's like you say it's a focal point and so uh we 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 put the port on the cover and all the different ships and then really small in the background is the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, for issue one. I think issue two, it's the same. I think the the Golden Gate Bridge is in the background. So. I think I see the Space Needle in issue two as well at some point. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, And that's and you know what? It's funny you say that because that's exactly where I'm at right now. I'm dying to see the inside. So it's good to know that we're going to get there eventually. Yeah, I, I, would, I would be a real, a real jerk if I was like <laughs> – it's like, yeah, you ha you introduce the gun, you gotta let it go off, and and uh, yeah, we uh, you know, the, they say no no human has ever been to port, so we've got to mm -hmm. see it. Uh, so that is coming. I could see that now. End of the first trade. Ah, you don't need to see the inside. We're good. <laughs> oh, so man. yeah, it's coming, but um, but yeah, it's 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 challenging to create. I mean, we had the same thing with Eclipse, where I, I think there were there were two. Um, non-character characters in there and one was the sun and the other was the city and uh you um yeah i don't know uh you just have to uh think about the way you um present that i think you present it the same all the time i think sometimes like the sun we always tried to present the sun the same way in eclipse and um it, it and it started to have a kind of presence and it's always it, it's in the background a lot that people don't realize and so um you just you just maintain it but um it's a challenge for sure
All right, Zach, let's go off the beaten path a little bit. I don't know how big of a Star Wars fan you are, but, I mean, it's we're talking sci-fi here, so I have yeah. to ask. So, with The Last Jedi in theaters now, what are your expectations? What's one thing you really hope to see in this movie? Oh, boy. I'm biting my tongue for the. I mean, I'll talk about it, but I'm um I'm holding my breath because I was not a I I, I was on board with number seven, okay. but I'm a little concerned. You're you're uh, not the only one, Zach. So it's okay. You're this is a friendly place. Yeah, I uh, I'm a little concerned about the. We we have to learn more about Snook 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 Snook. Yeah, Snook-y. yeah, you got it. Snook-y. You got it. Yeah. Because I guess that's the ultimate villain, but but the problem is uh, so in in four five and six you've got Darth Vader as the biggest badass in the galaxy, and he's our real you know he's a vil- he's the villain that we walk away from with Star Wars, and then he's got a boss, the Emperor, who's also a badass villain. But Darth Vader was a badass villain, and here we've got. Uh, emo teenager uh kylo who is uh you know (laughs) having a hard time with things uh in his adolescence and he's got daddy issues but i'm just not scared of him and i think real problem i think if you look at if you look at big franchise um tentpole um you know, series, and you look at the ones that have real lasting power, and it's it's a, a scary villain. You look at Harry Potter, he who shall not be named, scary villain, yep. and we keep coming back because we are wondering how the heck is Harry Potter going to defeat him because it's a, it's a very scary villain. Or Lord of the Rings, scary villain. We're like, mm-hmm. how the heck are they going to go up against this scary villain? I, I think it's really important. And here I find myself coming. To find out, well, who's Ray related to, or um, what's up with Snooky, and and where's he come from? Is he somebody? I'm. Is he? <laughs> is it going to be revealed? Like, oh, he's someone I'm supposed to know. Right. Right. And, so yeah. And so, and you know, if you look at the latest trailer on TV, the latest trailer is "Don't let anyone spoil it for you," which is come see it so that you can find out the answers to these crazy questions okay so great i'm dying to know the answers to the questions right will i want to watch it six months from now after i found out the answers to the questions when you put it on cable three years from now will i get wrapped into watching it because i get wrapped into watching any of the four five and six right totally yeah i mean if star wars comes on and i'm like doing something in front of the tv that stays on it's just i mean it's just fun as hell to watch so I just don't know that I'm going to really care. I'm going to be like, I know who's Ray's related to, and I know who Snook is, and, uh, you know, I'm not really that scared. I mean, she beat uh, Kylo in their first face-off, right? Yep, she did. I mean, mean, you could certainly see it that way, sure, yeah. He did not. He did not dominate her in the way that Darth dominates Luke in their first face-off. Exactly, exactly. And so... Darth dominates Luke. That was such a powerful choice for the writers and storytellers in Empire to say, okay, they're going to finally meet, and Luke is literally going to get his ass handed to him so that you are afraid of hell of him facing that guy again. But that's going to be the emotional dilemma. Does he face this guy? Is he ready? Does he prepare? Or does he save his friends? Does he put? Does he go too fast? Will he embrace anger if he goes too fast? It was a fantastic setup, and... 
I just don't know what that is here. So I could be wrong. They could build it all here. Um, I, I would love nothing more than to be impressed, but I need a lot more going in. And I just hope that they haven't got caught up in the Game of Thrones. Um, yeah. uh Who's what? The, the, this there. It, it, it's a movie. It's not an episode, right? And um, I feel like episodic television has creeped into filmmaking so much that that it, it's all about these serialized reveals and these secrets, and that's not enough to sustain a, a movie. Um, and I worry that Star Wars, the whole canon, is going to be transformed into these annual episodes where we're just like, who's he, who's she, what's she related to? But we're really just watching to find out what happens next, and we're not actually watching because we really care about the characters. Now, I will give them a lot of credit. I had this big debate with a, another writer friend of mine. Ray is a great character. Totally, they, yeah. They, they, they have done a – and Finn is a good character. Yes. And so they've created some good characters, and I want to like them, and I want to see them tested. So – it's not about them. It's just about the dilemmas that they're setting up and the villains that they're setting up. I hope they pull it together. I would love nothing more than to walk out and go, seven was set up and eight delivered, and uh, and I can't wait to see nine. I hope. But well, um, when, when Kylo Ren's first impression was a badass one and his second one was a galactic hissy fit, that, that's the one thing that got me a little bit nervous about him. <laughs> And, and your point of not being scared of him, I, I I'm not either. And that's yeah. I, and I actually liked Force Awakens. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I liked yeah. it a pretty good amount. It was it was fun, and I felt yeah. like it reset things back to the way they should be in the Star Wars universe, and that's why I liked it. But in yeah. this one now, now, I understand why people didn't like Force Awakens. But in this one now, it's setting me up now in eight for okay. Now you need to give me something, and and I think yeah. that was that was kind of part of your point is now I'm expecting something that I hope they deliver on. Yeah, um, but the, but it's not a good situation for a storyteller to be behind the eight ball going right. into a series. I mean, when you watch episode four, and uh, after they blow up the um, oh spoiler alert, they blow up the Death Star after they blow up the Death Star. <laughs> Uh, and Darth Vader senses Luke, and you know if this if this continues, Luke and Darth are going to have to go at it. Uh, that's that's not behind the eight ball. That's exactly where you want the audience. You you see Luke sensing Darth. You see Darth sensing Luke, and you're like, oh boy, they need they're going to go at it. Who's going to win? Whereas they're behind the eight ball now. They have to set up that. So I don't know. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see. They. Um, but it's listen. It's hard. Uh, you know, it's 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 hard stuff. So I'm also really confused by the whole um, new trilogy that Rian Johnson's getting. Yeah. Do you? It's in an, another galaxy. He's Far? he's saying it has absolutely nothing to do with the current canon. So I mean, this could. I mean, they could go anywhere with this. I don't know if that includes the books or not. Because if it doesn't include the books, then I mean, there's a ton of stories that they can tell. But I mean. Not not a whole lot, but certainly enough. But I mean, I mean I got, is it going to be I, compelling enough? That's my problem. Yeah, I don't have any problem with um, another Star Wars trilogy. I love that idea, uh, and I don't mind new characters and new conflict and new. It could be fifty years in the future or fifty years in the past. It right. could be. I mean, you look at Game of Thrones, right? So Game of Thrones wants to do a spinoff. Great, I love Game of Thrones. I I I watch the spinoff. 
And they're like, okay, maybe it's Robert's Rebellion, maybe it's something before, maybe it's the, the birth of the White Walkers. There's a lot of different ways to go. And I'm like, yeah, great. Bring me back to Westeros at a completely different time with a completely different group of characters. So is Star Wars back to these this this area, or are we going to like Star Trek universe? Like, what galaxy are they talking mm-hmm. about? Right. So I'm confused by that. And you can only time jump so much too. I feel like in in, the, in this timeline, I feel like we've done that. And how much further do you want to go? What do you yeah. want to explore? And, and they all don't forget. They also want to do a TV, a live action TV series too. At some point, they haven't exactly they said really? what that's going to be. Yeah, they haven't said exactly what that's going to be about, about either. And good luck picking a network for that. Although now Disney kind of has their pick of the litter now. I guess. So yeah, they knows? do. Yeah. Well, no, dis. Uh, you know what Disney's staging to do is they're they're going to have their own streaming right. channel. Right. And and so Disney's already a production facility. Disney can already produce content on their own. Disney doesn't actually have. I mean, they own ABC, they own they own channels, but um, they're actually they pulled all of their content off of Netflix because they're going to uh, right. They're going to they're going to put their own Netflix out there. So so basically, you're going to have you're going to have to have your Netflix, your Hulu, your Amazon Prime, and your Disney streaming channel. Those will be the the four big ones. Don't forget um, your DC Comic streaming channel too. That one's coming. You're gonna, yep, you're okay. gonna have to add a fourth. Yep. That'll be your fifth after Disney. No, you're right. You're right. That would be five. Yeah. So uh, that's the game now. Um, But it's uh, it's all very interesting. It's the it's good. It look people are freaking out online about um, uh, Disney buying Fox. It's not a problem. This has been. I mean, if people, this happens all the time in in um, in entertainment history, and conglomerates are built. And conglomerates get taken down. Uh, you know, there will be look. Go back in time, ten years ago. Did anybody see Netflix becoming what they are now today? Very true. Not at all. And me, I you go back to twenty seven or twenty six or five. Maybe we got to go back twelve years. I don't remember where was Netflix streaming. No, Netflix wasn't streaming in two thousand seven, no, right? Not that no. I can recall. No. No, they were. They were. Yeah. So you go back to 2007, Netflix wasn't even streaming. Nobody was streaming. And I bet you there was some big deal that people were like, oh, my God, I can't believe so-and-so bought so-and-so. And we don't, And now we're not talking about it. So I, I just don't, uh, you know, you know, it's just not a big deal. There's, it, um, I, I'm not as concerned about it. Um, so I think that uh, I know people are concerned about what it means for like Wolverine or Deadpool and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I'm like, okay, I get that's fair. But in terms of like um, the industry, um, there will always be opportunity. There will always be new players. And uh, if anything, um, it's a great time to be a creator because um, there's there's n- there's new avenues that are popping up, like streaming. And they're pouring a ton of money into into creator new creators, and so it's a, it's, I think it's a really exciting time for 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 TV and streaming anyway. Film, on the other hand, has got to catch up somehow. I don't know what that's going to be, but uh, but but hey, 
comics. <laughs> there you go. And I was just going to say, if your fandom falls anywhere in the needle of any of the stuff we were just talking about, this is why you absolutely need to go get Port of Earth issues one and two because you're going to love it. I don't care if it's at your local comic shop or if you're going to buy it digitally, do that. Issue three going to be coming January of 2018. And while you're at it, I mean, there's a couple trades out for Eclipse yep. if you want to get caught up on everything that Zach's got going on. We are working on Eclipse uh, right now. We're going to be coming back next year with more of it. So, um, so yeah, go go check them out. Uh, I listen. If you uh, if you like sci-fi at all and you like aliens, you should pick up Port of Earth. It's uh, a really awesome series, and uh, it's it's a it's a, a new take on. I haven't seen this, this take on Alien Arrival. So if somebody finds, I mean, there's some similarities maybe in like literature, but. You guys should go check it out. Let me know what you think. Bottom line, keep your eye on this guy, Zach Kaplan. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, man. Thanks, man. Always great to talk with you. So much good stuff. Digging deep there by Zach Kaplan on the Down and Nerdy podcast this week. Make sure you're going to get Port of Earth and, of course, Eclipse from Top Cow. You are not going to be disappointed. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Zach Kaplan. And you can always follow us online. Find Zach's first interview talking about Eclipse at downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. That's going to do it for this week. Don't forget, don't ever apologize for being a nerd. Let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.